Hypothesis, Hermione Granger, April 8th, 1992, 6.53pm. Meanwhile, in the Great Hall of Hogwarts, as the students who didn't have secret meetings with the headmaster bustled about their dinner around four huge tables, It's funny, Dean Thomas said thoughtfully. I didn't believe the general when he said that what we learned would change us forever and we'd never be able to return to a normal life afterward. Once we knew, once we saw what he could see... I know, said Seamus Finnegan. I thought it was just a joke, too. Like, you know, everything else General Chaos ever said, ever. But now, Dean said sadly, we can't go back, can we? It'd be like going back to a muggle school after having been to Hogwarts. We've just... We've just got to stay around each other. That's all we can do. Or we'll go crazy. Seamus Finnegan next to him just nodded wordlessly and ate another bite of Veldbeast. Around them, the conversation at the Gryffindor table continued. It wasn't as relentless as it had been yesterday, but now and then the topic wandered back. Well, there must have been some sort of love triangle, said a second-year witch named Samantha Crowley, she never answered when asked if there was any relation. The question is, which ways was it going before it all went wrong? Who was in love with who, and whether or not that person loved them back? I don't know how many possibilities there are. Sixty-four, said Sarah Variable, a blossoming beauty who probably should have been sorted into Ravenclaw or Hufflepuff instead. Uh, no, wait... That's wrong. I mean, if nobody loved Malfoy and Malfoy didn't love anyone, then he wouldn't really be part of the love triangle. This is going to take arithmancy. Could you all wait two minutes? I, for one, think it's perfectly clear that Granger is Potter's Moirail, and that Potter was auspicing between Malfoy and Granger. The witch who had spoken nodded with the self-satisfaction of someone who'd just precisely nailed down a complicated issue. Those aren't even words, objected a young wizard. You're just making them up as you go. Sometimes you can't describe a thing using real words. It's so sad, said Charisse Nazarin, who actually had tears in her eyes. They were just, they were just so obviously meant to be together. You mean Potter and Malfoy, said a second year named Colleen Johnson. I know, their families hated each other so much, there was no way they couldn't fall in love. No, I mean all three of them, said Charisse. This produced a brief pause in the huddled conversation. Dean Thomas was quietly choking on his lemonade, trying not to make any sounds as it trickled out of his mouth and soaked into his shirt. "'Wow!' said a dark-haired witch by the name of Nancy Hua. "'That's really sophisticated of you, Charisse. "'Look, you all, we need to keep this realistic.' 
said Eloise Rosen, a tall witch who'd been general of an army and hence spoke with an air of authority. We know, because she kissed him, that Granger was in love with Potter. So the only reason she'd try to kill Malfoy is if she knew that she was losing Potter to him. There's no need to make it all sound so complicated. You're all acting like this is a play instead of real life. But even if Granger was in love, it's still funny that she'd just snap like that, said Chloe, whose black robes combined with her night black skin to make her look like a darkened silhouette. I don't know. I think maybe there's more to this than just a romance novel gone wrong. I think maybe most people haven't got any idea at all what's going on. Yes, thank you burst out Dean Thomas. Look, don't you realise, like Harry Potter told us all, if you didn't predict that something would happen, if it took you completely by surprise, then what you believed about the world when you didn't see it coming isn't enough to explain... Dean's voice trailed off as he saw that nobody was listening. It's completely hopeless, isn't it? You hadn't figured that out yet, said Lavender Brown, who was sitting across the table from her two fellow former chaotics. How did you ever make lieutenant? Oh, you to be quiet, Cherise snapped at them. It's obvious you both want the three of them for yourselves. I mean it, Chloe said. What if what's really going on is different from all the, you know, Normal things that all the ordinary people are talking about. Whatever somebody made Granger do what she did, just like Potter was trying to tell everyone. I think Chloe's right, said a foreign-looking boy wizard who always introduced himself as Adrian Turnipseed, though his parents had actually named him Mad Drongo. I think this whole time there's been... Adrian lowered his voice ominously. A hidden hand. Adrian raised his voice again. Shaping all that's happened. One person who's been behind everything from the beginning. And I don't mean Professor Snape either. You don't mean, gasped Sarah. Yes, Adrian said. The real one behind it all is Tracy Davis. That's what I think too, Chloe said. After all, she glanced around rapidly. Ever since that thing with the bullies and the ceiling, even the trees in the forest around Hogwarts look like they're shaking, like they're afraid. Seamus Finnegan was frowning thoughtfully. I think I see where Harry gets his, you know, from. Seamus said, lowering his voice so that only Lavender and Dean could hear. Oh, I totally know what you mean, Lavender said. She didn't bother to lower her own voice. It's a wonder he didn't crack and just start killing everyone ages ago. Personally... Dean said, also in a quieter voice. I'd say the really scary part is that could have been us.
Yeah, said Lavender. It's a good thing we're all perfectly sane now. Dean and Seamus nodded solemnly. Hypothesis GL April 8th, 1992, 8.08 p.m. The flu fire of the headmaster's office blazed a bright pale green, the fire concentrating in on itself into a spinning emerald whirlwind, and then flared even brighter and spit a human figure into the air. There was a blur of motion as the resolving figure snapped up a wand, smoothly spinning with the flu's momentum like a ballet dance step so that his firing arc covered the entire 360-degree arc of the room. And then, just as abruptly, the figure stopped in place. In the first instant that Harry saw that man, before Harry even took in the eye, he noticed the scars on the hands, the scars on the face, like the man had been burned and cut over his entire body, though only the man's hands and face were visible of all his flesh. The rest of the man's body was hidden, encased not in robes, but in leather that looked more like armour than clothing, dark grey leather, matching the man's mess of greyed hair. The next thing that Harry's vision comprehended was the brilliant blue eye occupying the right side of the man's face. One part of Harry's mind realized that the person whom Professor McGonagall had named Mad-Eye Moody was the same as the one Dumbledore had called Alistair, within the memory Dumbledore had shown Harry. An image from before whatever event had scarred every inch of the man's body and taken a chunk out of his nose. And another part of his mind noticed the jolt of adrenaline. Harry had drawn his wand in sheer reflex when the man had spun out of the flu like that. There'd been something about it that felt like ambush. Harry's hand had already started to level his wand for a somnium before he'd managed to stop himself. Even now, the armoured man was holding his wand level, not pointed at any particular person, but covering the whole room, and that wand was already in perfect line with his eyes, like a soldier sighting down a gun. There was a danger in the man's stance and the set of his boots, Danger in the leather armour he wore, and danger in that bright blue eye. When the scarred man spoke, addressing the headmaster, his voice was edged. I suppose you think this room is secure? There are only friends here, Dumbledore said. The man's head jerked toward Harry. That include him? If Harry Potter is not our friend, Dumbledore said gravely, then we are all certainly doomed, so we may as well assume that he is. The man's wand stayed level, not quite pointing at Harry. By almost drew on me just then. Ah, uh, Harry said. He noticed that his hand was still tightly holding the wand, and consciously relaxed his hand and dropped it back to his side. 
Sorry about that. Uh, you looked a bit <laughs> combat ready. The scarred man's wand moved slightly away from where it had almost pointed at Harry, though it didn't lower, and the man let out a short bark of laughter. Ha! Constant vigilance here, lad, said the man. It's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. Harry recited the proverb. The man turned fully toward Harry, and in so far as Harry could read any expression on the scarred face, the man now looked interested. Dumbledore's eyes had regained some of that brilliant twinkle that they'd had before the Azkaban breakout. A smile beneath his silver moustache, as though that smile had never left. Harry, this is Alistair Moody, called also Mad-Eye, who will command the Order of the Phoenix after me, if anything should happen to me, that is. Alistair, this is Harry Potter. I have every hope the two of you shall get along fantastically. I've heard a good deal about you, boy, said Mad-Eye Moody. His one dark, natural eye stayed fixed on Harry, while the point of brilliant blue spun frantically, seeming to rotate all the way around within its socket. Not all of it good. Heard they're calling you the Dementor Spooker in the department. After some consideration, Harry decided to reply with a knowing smile. How'd you pull off that one, boy? The man said softly. Now his blue eye was fixed on Harry as well. I had a little chat with one of the Irish who escorted the Dementor there from Azkaban. Beth Martin said it came straight from the pit, and no one gave it any special instructions along the way. Of course, she could be lying. There wasn't any sneaky trick to that one. Harry said. I just did it the hard way. Of course, I could also be lying. Dumbledore was leaning back in his chair, chuckling in the background, like he was just another device in the headmaster's office, and that was the sound he made. The scarred man turned back to face the headmaster, though his wand stayed pointed low and in Harry's general direction. When he spoke, his voice was gruff and businesslike. I have a lead on a recent host of Valdis. You're certain his shade is in Hogwarts now? Not certain, Dumbledore began. Uh, say what? Harry interrupted. After having nearly concluded that the Dark Lord didn't exist, it was a shock to hear it being discussed that matter-of-factly. Valdi's host, Moody said shortly, the one he possessed before he took over Granger. If the tales speak true, Dumbledore said, there is some device of power which binds Voldemort's shade to this world, and by that means he may bargain with a host for possession of their body, conferring on them some portion of his power and his pride. So, the obvious question is who gained too much power too quickly?
Moody said abruptly. And it turns out that there is a fellow who's gone and banished the Bandon Banshee, taken an entire rogue vampire clan in Asia, tracked down the Wagga Wagga werewolf, and exterminated a pack of ghouls using a tea strainer. And he's milking it for all it's worth. There's been talk of the Order of Merlin. Seems to have turned into a charmer and a politician. Not just a powerful wizard. Dear me, murmured Dumbledore. Are you certain that he is not relying on his own skills? Checked his grades, Moody said. Record shows Gilderoy Lockhart received a troll in his defense OWLs. Didn't bother with the N.E.W.T. Just the sort of sucker to take the deal Voldy was offering. The blue eye whirled crazily within its socket. Unless you remember Lockhart as a student, and think he had enough potential to do all that boy himself. No, said Professor McGonagall. She frowned. Not a chance, I should say. I fear I must agree, Dumbledore said with an undertone of pain. Ah, Gilderoy, you poor fool. Moody's grin was more like a snarl. Three in the morning worked for you, Elbus. Lockhart should be at his home tonight. Harry listened to this with increasing alarm, wondering if even the Ministry had any rules about magistrates needing to issue warrants. Never mind the illegal vigilante organization Harry now seemed to have joined. Excuse me, Harry said. What exactly happens at three in the morning? There must have been something in Harry's voice that gave him away, because the scarred man whirled on him. You have a problem with that boy? Harry paused, trying to figure out how to phrase this to a stranger. You want to take him down yourself? pressed the scarred man. Get revenge for your parents, eh? Uh, no, Harry said as politely as he could. Honestly, uh, look, if we knew for certain he was a willing host for you-know-who, uh, that's one thing. But if we're not sure, and you're heading off to kill him... Kill! Mad-Eye Moody snorted. It's what's locked up in his head. Moody tapped his forehead. That we need from him, boy. If we're lucky, Voldy can't wipe the sucker's memories as easy as in his living days, and Lockhart will remember what the Horcrux looks like. Harry mentally noted down the word Horcrux for future research and said, I'm just worried that someone innocent... Uh, what sounds like a pretty decent person, if he did do all that himself, uh, might be about to get hurt. Horrors hurt people, the scarred man said shortly. Bad people, if you're lucky. Some days you won't be lucky, and that's all there is to it. Just remember, dark wizards hurt a lot more people than we do. Harry took a deep breath. 
Can you at least try not to hurt this person in case he's not? What is a first year doing in this room, Elvis? demanded the scarred man, now whirling to face the headmaster. And don't tell me it's for what he did when he was a baby. Harry Potter is not an ordinary first year, the headmaster said quietly. He has already accomplished feats impossible enough to shock even me, Alistair. He is the only intellect in the order which might someday match that of Voldemort himself, as you or I never could. The scarred man leaned over the headmaster's desk. He's a liability. Naive. Doesn't know a bloody thing about what war's like. I want him out of here, and all his memories of the order wiped before one of Voldy's servants plucks them straight out of his mind. I'm an Ocklemans, actually. Mad-Eye Moody directed a narrow look at the headmaster, who nodded. And then the scarred man turned to face Harry, their gazes meeting. The sudden fury of the legilimency attack almost made Harry fall off his chair as a blade of white-hot steel cut into the imaginary person at the forefront of his mind. Harry hadn't had a chance to practice since Mr. Bester's training, and Harry very nearly lost his grip on the imaginary person the back of his mind was pretending to be, as that person's world turned into searing lava and a furious probe of questions. Harry almost lost his grip on only pretending to hallucinate, only pretending to be the imaginary person that was screaming in shock and pain as the legilimency tore apart his sanity and reshaped him to believe that he was on fire. Harry managed to break eye contact, dropping his eyes to Moody's chin. You're out of practice, boy, Moody said. Harry wasn't looking at the man's face, but his voice was deadly grim. And I'll warn you of this much once. Valdi isn't like any other legilimens in recorded history. He doesn't need to look you in the eyes, and if your shields are that rusty, he'd creep in so softly you'd never notice a thing. Duly noted, Harry said to the scarred chin. Harry was more shaken than he'd have admitted. Mr. Bester hadn't been anywhere near that powerful, and had never tested Harry like that. Pretending to be someone hurting that much had... Harry couldn't find words for describing what it felt like to contain an imaginary person in that much pain. But it hadn't been... normal. Do I get any credit for being an Ocklemans in the first place? So, you're thinking you're all grown up already, eh? Look me in the eyes. 
Harry strengthened his shields and looked once more into the dark grey eye and the brilliant blue. Ever watch someone die? asked Mad-Eye Moody. My parents, Harry said evenly. I recovered the memory in January when I went in front of a Dementor to learn the Patronus charm. I remember you know whose voice. A chill went through Harry's body, his wand twitching in his hand. My main tactical report is that you-know-who could speak the killing curse in less than half a second, but you probably already knew that. There was a gasp from Professor McGonagall's direction, and Severus's face had tightened. All right, Mad-Eye Moody said softly. A strange, thin grin twisted up the lips within the scarred face. I'll make you the same offer I'd make to any trainee horror. Land one touch on me, boy. One hit, one spell, and I'll concede your right to talk back to me. Alistair, exclaimed Professor McGonagall's voice. Surely that's an unreasonable test. Mr. Potter, whatever his other merits, does not have a hundred years of fighting experience. Harry's eyes made a lightning dart around the room, passing over the peculiar devices, glancing past Dumbledore and Severus and the Sorting Hat, settling briefly here and there. Harry couldn't see Professor McGonagall from where he was, but that didn't matter. There was only one device he'd really wanted to look at, and the point of all the other glances had just been to conceal which one. All right, Harry said and hopped off his chair, ignoring Professor McGonagall's inhalation and the potion master's snort of disbelief. Dumbledore's eyebrows had lifted, and Moody was grinning like a tiger. Be sure to wake me up in forty minutes if he does get me. Harry settled into a duelist's starting stance, his wand held low. Let's go then! Harry opened his eyes, his head feeling like it had been stuffed with cotton wool. Everyone else was gone from the headmaster's office. The flu fire dimmed only Dumbledore still waiting behind the desk. Hello, Harry, the headmaster said quietly. I didn't even see him move, Harry marvelled, muscles creaking as he sat up. You were standing two paces away from Alistair Moody, said Dumbledore, and you took your eye off his wand. Harry nodded as he took the cloak of invisibility out of his pouch. I mean, I was taking the dueling stance so that he'd think I was a standard idiot and underestimate me. But I have to admit, that was impressive. So, you planned it all along, Harry, Dumbledore said. Of course, 
Harry said. Note how I'm doing this as soon as I wake up, rather than pausing to think of it. Harry drew the hood of the cloak over his head and glanced back up at the wall clock he'd surreptitiously glanced at earlier. It had then shown around twenty-three minutes after eight, and now it was five minutes after nine. Minerva stared as the boy put himself into the dueling stance, his wand held low. For a second, Minerva wondered if Harry might possibly... No, that was completely ridiculous. It was Mad-Eye Moody, and that was beyond impossible. Of course, that was what she'd thought about his partial transfiguration, too. Let's go, then, Harry said, and fell over. Severus gave a single chuckle. <laughs> Mr. Potter has his points, I must confess, the potions master said, though I would never say it while he was awake, and if you repeat the words, I shall deny them, for the boy's ego is quite large enough already. Mr. Potter does have his points, mad I but dueling is not among them. Mad-Eye's own chuckle was lower and grimmer. Oh, yes, said Mad-Eye. Only fool's duel, standing like that and waiting for me to attack. What was the boy thinking? Why, I ought to give him a scar to remember this occasion. Alistair! barked Albus, just as she cried, Stop! Severus dashed forward, and Mad-Eye Moody deliberately leveled his wand on Harry Potter's body. Stupefy! Mad-Eye's body seemed to almost flicker as he spun on his wooden foot like lightning, faster than she'd ever seen anyone move without magic the red stunning hex passing through the suddenly empty air and barely missing Severus to crash into the opposite wall, and by the time her eyes jerked back to Moody, there were seventeen radiant orbs in the pattern of a Sagittar Magica, visible for only an instant before they streaked brilliance and struck something that fell to the floor with a thud. Hello again, Harry said Dumbledore. I cannot believe that guy's reaction time, Harry said, brushing off his cloak as he stood up from where he'd been lying, invisible on the floor, unseen by his previous self. I can't believe his movement speed either. I'm going to have to figure out some way to zap him without speaking an incantation that gives it away. And then Mad-Eye ducked hard and fast, his hands hitting flat on the floor. She almost didn't see the two tiny white threads passing through the space he'd been in, but her eyes went to the blue spark when the threads impacted on one of the headmaster's devices, and by the time she managed to turn her eyes back, Mad-Eye had spun smoothly up to his feet, his wand was dancing unseeably fast, and there was another thudding sound.
Hello again, Harry. Uh, pardon me, Headmaster, but could you let me go down your stairs and then come back up again before I make the final jump backward? This is going to take longer than one hour of preparation. Minerva gaped at Mad-Eye Moody, who hadn't lowered his wand in the slightest, and Severus had a look on his face that was almost like shock. Well, boy, said Mad-Eye Moody, what else have you got? Harry Potter's head appeared, floating in mid-air as an invisible hand drew back the hood of his invisibility cloak. That eye said Harry Potter. There was a strange, fierce light in the boy's eyes. That isn't an ordinary device. It can see right through my invisibility cloak. You dodged my transfigured taser as soon as I started raising it, even though I didn't speak any incantations. And now that I've watched it again, you spotted all my time-turned selves the moment you flew into this room, didn't you? Mad-Eye Moody was smiling, the same teeth-bared grin she'd seen him wear as they faced off against Voldemort himself. Spend a hundred years hunting dark wizards, and you say everything, said Moody. I once arrested a young Japanese who tried a similar trick. He found out the hard way that his shadow replica technique was no match for this eye of mine. You see in all directions, Harry Potter said, that strange fierce light still in his gaze. No matter where that eye is pointing, it sees everything around you. Moody's tiger grin grew wider. There's no more of you in this room now, Mad-Eye said. Think that's because you'll give up this time, or because you'll win. Any bets, boy? It's my final attempt because I decided to stake my last three hours on one shot, said Harry Potter. As for whether I win. There was a blur filling the whole air of the headmaster's office. Mad-Eye Moody leapt to one side with blinding speed and an instant later Harry's head darted backward as he cried, Stupify! Three shimmers in the air went past Harry's moving head, just as a red bolt erupted from Harry's location, shooting past Moody as he dodged in yet another direction. If she'd blinked, she'd have missed it, the red bolt making an angled turn in mid-air and slamming into Moody's ear. Moody fell. Harry Potter's floating head dropped to the height of a first year on their hands and knees, then dropped further to the ground, his face showing sudden exhaustion. Minerva McGonagall said, What in Merlin's name just... So, you went to Flitwick then, Moody said, 
The retired Aura was now sitting in a chair, drinking long draughts from a restorative in a bottle he had taken off his belt. Harry Potter nodded, now sitting in his own chair instead of perched on an armrest. I tried the defense professor first, but... The boy grimaced. He wasn't available. Uh, well, I'd decided it was worth risking five house points, and if you say a risk is worth it, you can't complain when you have to pay up. Anyway, I figured that if you had an eye that saw things other people couldn't see, then, as Isaac Asimov pointed out in Second Foundation, the weapon to use is a brilliant light. Uh, read enough science fiction, you know, and you'll read everything at least once. Anyway, I told Professor Flitwick that I needed a charm that would make a huge number of shapes, uh, bright and flickering and filling the whole office, but invisible, so only your eye could see them. I had no idea what it would even mean to cast an illusion and then make it invisible, but I figured if I didn't mention that out loud, Professor Flitwick would just do it anyway, and he did. Turns out there was no spell like that I could cast myself, but Flitwick charmed me a one-time device for it, though I had to persuade him that it wasn't cheating, since nothing could possibly be cheating against an aura who lived long enough to retire. And then I still didn't see how I could hit you when you were moving that fast. So I asked about targeted spells, and that was when Flitwick showed me that hex I cast at the end, the Swerving Stunner. It's one of Professor Flitwick's own inventions. He's a champion duelist as well as a charms master. I know that, son. Uh, sorry. Anyway, the professor says he left the dueling circuit before he got a chance to use that spell, since it only works as a finishing move on an unshielded opponent. The hex gets as close to the target as possible along its original trajectory, and then... Once it detects that the target is getting more distant again, the hex turns in mid-air and heads straight for the target. It can only swerve once, but the incantation sounds very close to stupefy, and the hex is the same red colour. So if the enemy thinks it's a regular stunning hex and tries a normal dodge, that mid-air retargeting will finish them off. Oh, and the professor requested that none of us talk about his special move, just in case he does get a chance to use it during competition someday. But, said Professor McGonagall, she glanced at Mad-Eye Moody, who was nodding his approval, and at Severus, who was keeping his face decidedly blank. Mr. Porter, you just stunned Mad-Eye Moody. The most famous dark wizard hunter in the history of the Aura Office. That should have been impossible. Moody let out a dark chuckle. What's your answer to that one, kid? I'm curious. Well, Harry said, 
Uh, first of all, Professor McGonagall, uh, neither of us were fighting seriously. Neither of you? Of course, Harry said. In a serious fight, Mr. Moody would have dropped all my copies immediately without waiting for them to attack. And on my side, if it was actually necessary to take down the most famous aura in the history of the office, I'd get Headmaster Dumbledore to do it for me. And beyond that, since that wasn't a real fight... Harry paused... Ah, how can I put this? Wizards are used to duels where people fight back and forth with spells for a while. But if two muggles with guns stand in a small room and fire bullets at each other, then whoever hits first wins. And if one of them is deliberately missing his shots, giving the other person one chance after another, like Mr. Moody gave me one chance after another... Uh, well, you'd have to be pretty pathetic to lose. Oh, not that pathetic, Moody said with a slightly threatening grin. Harry didn't seem to notice. You might say that Mr. Moody was testing me to see if I would try to fight him or try to win. That is, whether I'd carry out the role of somebody fighting, use standard spells I already knew, even though I didn't expect the consequences of that action to be victory, or if I'd search through unusual plans until I found something that could win. Like the difference between a student who sits in class because that's what students do, versus a student who cares enough to ask themselves what it takes to actually learn a piece of material and practices however necessary. You see, Professor McGonagall, when you look at it that way, realize that Mr. Moody was giving me chances and that I shouldn't attack in the first place unless I think I can win. Then I don't come out looking so well, since it actually took me three tries to get him. Uh, plus, uh, like I said, in a real fight, Mr. Moody could have turned himself invisible or put up shields. Don't go relying too much on shields, boy, Mad-Eye Moody said. The leather-clad aura took another sip from his restorative flask. What you learn in your first year at the academy doesn't stay true forever. Not against the strongest dark wizards. Every shield ever made, there's some curse that goes straight through it, if you're not quick enough to cast the counter. And there's one curse that goes through everything, and it's a curse any Death Eater will use. Harry Potter nodded gravely. Uh, right, some spells are impossible to block. I'll remember that in case anyone casts the killing curse at me. Again. That kind of cleverness gets people killed, boy. And don't you forget it. A sad-sounding sigh from the boy who lived. Uh, I know. Sorry. So, son, you had something to say about when Albus and I go after Lockhart. Harry opened his mouth, then paused. Uh, 
I won't tell you how to run a war, the boy who lived said eventually. I don't have any experience at that. All I know is that there are consequences. Please be advised that my own assessment is that Lockhart is probably innocent, so if you can avoid hurting him without too much risk... The boy shrugged. I don't know the cost. Just please, if you can, be careful not to hurt him if he's innocent. If I can, said Moody. And you're aiming to look through his mind for evidence about the Dark Lord, aren't you? I don't know what the rules are in Magical Britain about admissible evidence, but everyone's always guilty of breaking some law or another. There's just too many laws. So if it's not about the Dark Lord, don't turn him into the Ministry. Just obliviate him and go, okay? Moody frowned. Son, nobody gains power that fast without being up to something. Then leave it for the ordinary auras, if and when they find evidence the ordinary way. Please, Mr. Moody, call it a quirk of my muggle upbringing, but if it's not about the war, I don't want us to be the evil police who break into people's houses in the middle of the night, rummage through their minds and send them off to Azkaban. I don't see the sense of it, son, but I suppose I could do you the favour. Is there aught else, Alistair? inquired Albus. Yes, said Moody, about that defence professor of yours.